Father, you are the great God. You are the only God, the one who loves us, the one who sent his son for us. Father, I pray now for wisdom, for words, for the boldness to speak your truth, Father. Please give me clarity. Please give me the strength to say your words, Father. Lord, we pray for Scott as he's home ill. Lord, heal him quickly. Father, watch over him. Give him strength, Father. Give him a calm and a peace, Father. And give him a sweet rest that he so much deserves. Father, heal him quickly and restore him to us. Now bless us, Lord, as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So for those of you that may have missed the announcement, um, I am not Scott. Um, Scott suddenly did not lose a lot of hair. He didn't get old before your eyes. Um, he is indeed, he's uh, sick at home. He gave me a call last night or sent me a text last night, asked me if I would uh, preach this morning. So here I am. So how many of you have your blue sheets? You can forget what's on the back of it. <laughs> so now you have to take your, your pens and you have to line out the title. You have to line out the verses. You have to line out the, the outline, all that stuff. We're going to replace it with some new stuff. You know, God is, God is sovereign, and he's sovereign even over sicknesses. Um, I've been asked if I had a, a sermon on the shelf ready to go, and Scott has encouraged us all to, to have a sermon, be working on a sermon and be prepared. I wish I'd listened. Um, <laughs> no, actually, actually, this is a sermon I've been wanting to preach. Um, I had written about this in the, in the past, and I, I thought maybe this summer I would preach a sermon, but now I have the chance this morning. So um, to be perfectly honest, um, I, I was kind of excited, and I, I hope this touches your hearts. I pray to God that, that this rings true for you, that you, um, you see God's truths in this. So today the title is going to be, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A Tale of Two Sinners. What Must I Do to Be Saved? A Tale of Two Sinners. And we're going to be looking at two passages the first one is Matthew 19, 16 through 24. Matthew 19, 16 through 24, and Acts 16, 25 through 34. Acts 16, 25 through 34. Those are the two passages that we'll be looking at. Now, as we begin this morning, I want you to consider that life and death have long been on the mind of men. Consider Adam and Eve, the first man and woman they were concerned enough with God's declaration that they would die if they eat from the, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was forbidden to them that Satan appealed to their fears when he tempted Eve. You can find this account in, in Genesis 2. You see, in Genesis, told them, I'm sorry, in, in Genesis 3, Satan told them, you will not surely die. It was obvious it was on the, the, the thoughts of Eve that if I ate this, I'm going to die. So Satan has to start his first lie, you will not die. But having sinned, the man and his wife were immediately sentenced to death, both spiritual and physical. They hadn't faced that prospect before, but now they have. And yet at that very dark moment, God promised the means of salvation for mankind. You find that in Genesis 3.15, the first incidence of the mention of Christ in regards to salvation. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first evangelism. And ever since then, salvation has been recurring through the Bible. It is about salvation. The thread runs. Jesus Christ is about, or the word is about Jesus Christ, and the thread of salvation runs through that. 
Now the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary describes three notions to biblical salvation. The first of these involves a rescue of persons or nations from danger, from harm, from physical death, and especially from sin and spiritual death. The second notion of salvation involves spiritual renewal. And the third notion of salvation pertains to the restoration of the relationship between God and man. These are the, the three notions to a biblical salvation. Now the Old Testament is replete with references to salvation by God. In Exodus 14 and in Psalm 106, we read how the Lord saves Israel from the Egyptians. In Judges 10, he saves Israel from the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Mayanites. And in Numbers 1, 1 Samuel 2, 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Chronicles, Nehemiah, and the Psalms, we read other accounts where he saved Israel from their enemies. Now, not only has God saved them in the past, he is also their hope for salvation in the future. We find this in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, and in Joel. We even read a little bit about it to this morning in Isaiah 55 as Eric read the scripture to us. Now, while salvation was on the mind of, nation, or of Israel as a nation, it was not far from their thoughts individually. The psalmist declared that God saved them personally. Psalm 34, 6 says, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Psalm 116.6, the Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Individual salvation. And the psalmist declared that the Lord was their source and security of their salvation. Psalm 18.2 says that God is the horn of my salvation. Psalm 18.46, he is the God of my salvation. Psalm 37, 39, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. And there's many, many other references in the Psalms. All of these attribute salvation to God and to God alone. It's not man raising himself up. It's not idols saving people. It is the Lord God who gives salvation. And while God was and is Israel's national and personal salvation, he also required that they exercise faith in order to receive the benefits of this salvation. But see, their faith faltered. Well, consider one account when they crossed the, or they were told to cross the Jordan to take possession of the promised land in Numbers 13 and 14. You know the story. Twelve spies were appointed, one from each tribe, to go into the land and to spy it out and to report on it back to all of Israel and to talk about what God was sending them into. Now we know that the land was good. They brought back a cluster of grapes so big, imagine a cluster of grapes so big that they gotta put it on a pole and dangle it between them and carry it back. It was a wonderful, beautiful land. But one of the problems that they feared was that the people were big. There were big people there, so big that they considered themselves to be grasshoppers in comparison. <clears throat> These spies, when they got back, 10 of them conspired to give a bad report. Now imagine this, God, who has taken them through all the troubles that they've gone through, rescued them out of Egypt, parted the Red Sea while they crossed, and then wiped out Pharaoh's army, and yet now they're worried about some big people. And so 10 of these spies conspire, they're gonna give a bad report, 
And this discouraged the people. They actually started complaining. Now Joshua and Caleb exhorted the people, no, rise up and go. God's going to give it to us. What are, you, what are you so afraid of? But they wouldn't go forward. And this brought God's anger. And he threatened to wipe out the nation. He wanted to disinherit them. And he told Moses, they're gone. I'll, I'll wipe them out. I'll disinherit them. I'll make you a great nation. And what did Moses do? He interceded for the Israelites. And he said, no, don't do that. Let your name be great. And Israel, Israel wasn't trusting God, but Moses did. And so God told Moses, okay, I'm going to pardon the people. But as a consequence, not one of them will go into the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. All the rest of them will die in the desert. They're going to wander in the desert. He wouldn't wipe them out immediately because that's what he was threatening to do, right? Wipe them out right now. He said, no, I'll let them live, but they're not going to see the promised land. They didn't have the faith to go in. Well, you remember what happens next because Israel now relents. They go, oh, well, wait, wait a minute here. Okay, we'll go in. So they arm themselves, they get ready for battle, and they're going to cross over. God says, no, you're not, you're not going over, and you're not going to win this battle. Moses tells them, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to lose. But they did so anyway. And what do you think happened? They got soundly defeated. You see, what happened is they didn't have faith in God, but they still expected his salvation. And it doesn't work that way. And I have to ask, how about you? Do you lack faith in God yet expect him to save you? Hebrews eleven six 6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. But you see, salvation is more than rescue from harm and death. It involves a spiritual renewal and that restoration of the relationship between God and man. We know that as reconciliation. We are reconciled to God. And throughout the Old Testament, Israel had showed a decided lack of faith in God. They had followed false gods and idols. They weren't reconciled to God. They didn't have that relationship. And as a result, we read in 2 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 25 that Israel was stripped of its land and they were sent off into exile. Their relationship with God was broken because of their lack of faith. And the Old Testament demonstration that faith is a prerequisite for salvation is underscored in the New Testament. And this principle is evident when the question is asked, how can I be saved? Now, a demonstration of saving faith can be found by comparing and contrasting two real-life accounts of men seeking salvation. In Matthew 19, 16 through 22, we read of a rich man who approached Jesus asking, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And in Acts 16, 25 to 34, Luke records the account of a Philippian jailer who having been stopped at the brink of suicide, asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Each man's response to the answers they were given is the opposite. One goes out with sorrow, one goes out with joy. Only one of them has saving faith. According to, the, to uh, uh, Unger, a, a commentator, faith, as most often used in scripture, is a moral and spiritual quality of individuals by virtue of which men are held in relations of confidence in God and fidelity to him. Don't miss that last part. Relation to God and fidelity to him. 
In the theological sense, there's two elements of faith. One is intellectual. We know it with our minds. But the other is moral. We know it with our hearts. You have to have both to have saving faith. It is not simply the assent of the intellect to revealed truth. It is the practical submission of the entire man to the guidance and control of such truth. Are we not told this in James 2.19? You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. But see, demons aren't saved. Like the demons, you are merely, if you're merely assenting to the truth of God, but not submitting to it, you have great reason to question your salvation. Both the rich young man and the Philippian jailer understood that there, were, there was more to life than that found on earth. They both recognized that. The young man believed in the resurrection, and the jailer, in fear and trembling after facing death, asked Paul and Silas about salvation. They each turned to someone who, by reputation, they believed would have the answer that they sought. The young man went to Jesus, acknowledging him to be a teacher and authority on the Old Testament. The Philippian jailer doubtless would have heard of all the commotion that Paul and Silas had, had brought about earlier in the day, which resulted in their being charged and leading them to be in the prison, leading them to be beaten and sent to the jail where the Philippian jailer was. The young man and the jailer each asked what he must do for eternal life or for salvation. But the similarities stop right there. So turn with me to Matthew 19. We'll look at Matthew 19, 16 through 24. Verse 16, and behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. See, when the rich man approached Jesus, he felt secure that observance of the law was what you needed for eternal life. You remember Matthew 19, 16, he asked specifically, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good deed must I do? In the accounts in both Mark 10 and Luke 18, the young man calls Jesus good teacher. See, it's apparent that he doesn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. He just refers to him as a teacher. Jesus tells him there's only one who does good. He points out the inconsistency in the man's thinking. If Jesus is good, he must be God. But the young man is not focusing on God as the source of eternal life. Instead, he's looking to his own works. Now, in the prevalent Jewish belief at the time, 
Eternal life was merited through the performance of good works. That's how they, they accomplished eternal life in their belief. So here he was specifically looking at what actions he could take to earn the eternal life. Now you might think the question is legitimate. Focusing on action to be taken. What action must I be taken? Believe in, believe in the Lord and you'll be saved. But still the man did not ask what must I do, but rather what good deed must I do? He didn't ask the general question, he asked the specific. What deed must I do? How do I earn salvation? He's looking for something he could perform. Now, perhaps he was merely asking for the assurance of eternal life. He wanted to be assured that you already have it because you've done these things. And so he was seeking just to know what specific act of righteousness he could demonstrate to show that he's saved. But if this were the case, he would be professing that he already is righteous enough to merit eternal life. That's what he'd be saying. And this belief is belied in Matthew 19, 20 when he says, what do I still lack? So he's acknowledging he's not righteous enough to enter heaven at this point. Now in Matthew 19, 17, Jesus answers the young man first by telling him only God is good. If only God is good, then by extension, the young man is not good. Now, had his heart been quick to understand, if he grasped that and saying, wait a minute, if God is only God is good and I'm not, well, then he would have deduced this and asked about attaining righteousness. But he doesn't ask that question. So look at Matthew 19, 18. And in it, he says, he said to him, which ones? He asked Jesus, which question, or which Commandments do I keep? He doesn't desire to keep all of the commandments. Just which ones do I have to keep? Pick the commandments and tell me what I have to keep. He wants to know which specific commandments qualify him for eternal life. Now how often do you fall into that pattern? Many times I've heard, Pastor, just tell me how to behave. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. Just preach it to us. We call these the do-be-don't-be sermons. Do be like David, don't be like Saul. The problem with a do-be-don't-be sermon is that we'd be preaching works. Do be like this and you'll be saved. Don't be like that and you won't be saved. And that's a false salvation. That's a works, a merit-based salvation. This is why here we preach Christ. May it never be, as Paul says, that we would preach a work salvation, a do-be-don't-be. We preach Jesus Christ. Now, if we look in the passage, Jesus enumerates five of the Ten Commandments, including the prescriptions against murder, adultery, theft, and lying, and the prescription to honor one's parents. And this is found in Exodus 20, 12 through 16, and in Deuteronomy 5, 16 through 20. And he adds to these commandments Love your neighbor as yourself. This is found in Leviticus 19. In Matthew 22, later on, Jesus identifies this as the second greatest commandment. Now in doing all this, Jesus did not mention the first four commandments all dealing with a person's relationship to God. Did you notice that? He doesn't, he doesn't identify those commandments. And neither did he mention the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Notice that he also did not include the very sin of which the young man is guilty. Covetousness, and according to Colossians 3, 5, idolatry, because covetousness is idolatry. 
Now you may say, well, why didn't Jesus just tell him to repent and have faith? Why tell him to keep the commandments rather than repent? Why, did, why not tell the old man directly just to have faith? And that's a good question. In all other encounters, Jesus commented that people's faith, not their good deeds, resulted in their forgiveness of sins. Your faith has made you whole. Now, John MacArthur says that perhaps Jesus knew the heart of the young man and that he was not ready to hear the truth. The man was not interested in a relationship, but rather in the good things leading to eternal life. You see the difference here. Not interested in a relationship, looking for the good things leading to eternal life. Jesus' answer was, answer was meant to point this man very graciously to his own sinfulness, to point him directly in there. How many times are we convicted by the law? We don't keep God's law. It points to our sinfulness. And then in Matthew 19, 20, the young man says, all these I have kept, referring to all the commandments that Jesus enumerated. Incredibly, he says he's kept all the commandments. Now, that's pretty prideful. And maybe he believed that. Maybe he really believed that he kept all the commandments. Only he and only God know for sure whether he kept all the commandments or not. But he makes the declaration. What's evident here is that he declared he kept the law. But we know from James 2, 8 through 11, that if you break even one command of the law, you've broken the entire law. And he didn't understand that truth. He didn't grasp that, that I'm a lawbreaker, I'm a sinner. Break one, you've broken the law. How about you? Have you acknowledged that you have broken the law and you're guilty of breaking the entire law of God? You're guilty of breaking the entire law of God. All of us here in this room have sinned and we've all broken the law. But the young man asks, so what do I lack? What more do I need? He's thinking of what he needed to perform to demonstrate to be worthy to gain eternal life. So this is where Jesus goes directly to the young man's heart. In verse 21, he tells the man if he's to be perfect, he must go, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. He knew that the young man was grasping onto the things of the earth. See, he believes himself to be obedient to God, but his heart isn't turned toward God. In this command is inherent Jesus' call to repentance. Central to that counsel is the command to sell everything and give to the poor. Now, this step was drastic and necessary for him to end his sin of covetousness and his sin of idolatry. In Mark 9, 43 and 48, Jesus preaches that one must take drastic measures to eliminate the sin in one's life. If your hand causes you to sin, you should cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, you should throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, you should pluck it out and discard it. Now, Jesus isn't advocating self-mutilation. What he's engaging in is a hyperbole to show that drastic measures need to be taken to prevent sin in one's life. But see, by grasping the means of sin, preserving its influence, there's no indication of a repentant heart. You just go back to your sin. And this is why Jesus is saying, take those drastic measures, cut it out, get rid of it, get rid of its influence. But what about you? Are you holding on to a, a sin or the means to sin? Are you preserving its influence in your life? What does that say about the quality of your repentance if you're doing so? 
Selling his possessions and giving money to the poor would cause the young man to store up for himself treasures in heaven. Jesus had used that same phrase earlier in Matthew 6 where he says, where your treasure is, what? There your heart is. And this is, what he was, this is what he was trying to get across. He's calling for the young man to repent, to turn his heart toward heaven. And this provides a, basic, a basis of the core for Jesus' direction to the young man. Come, follow me. Get rid of the means of sin. Get rid of its influence in your life. You will have treasure in heaven and follow me. This then was the young man's call to faith. He was to abandon all he had and become a disciple. Jesus tells anyone who would come after him to deny himself and take up his cross. Many who would declare a willingness to follow Jesus nonetheless had excuses to delay doing so. Let me first go back and bury the dead. Let me go back and do other things. Many would not follow him. You see, you have to forsake all to follow Jesus. The disciples did that. In Luke, 12, Luke 18, 28, Peter says, we have left our homes and followed you. What have you given up to follow Jesus? Have you given up your wealth? Maybe you've given up family relations because you have relatives who are hostile to your relationship with Jesus Christ. How about your popularity? At work? In organizations you belong on? Oh, there goes a Christian. Oh, this guy, he believes in myths. He, he follows his Jesus. Are you willing to give up your very popularity to follow your Lord? But see, blinded by his sin and by his possessions, this man didn't heed the call. He wasn't going to follow Jesus. Matthew 19, 22 says, When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He wasn't willing to give up that which he treasured. See, sadly to him, the value of eternal life was not enough to overcome the value he placed in his possessions on earth. Having things was more important than salvation. Jesus tells us that no man can serve two masters. You're either going to love the one and hate the other, or you'll hate the one and love the other. And in his particular case, he can't serve God and he can't serve money. And in verses 24 through 26, Jesus tells the disciples it's very difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, it's impossible apart from God. This is because the faith to believe and follow Jesus Christ does not originate in humans. It's not of our own doing. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that it's solely through God's grace that one is given the faith by which to believe. We can't generate this. So the rich man who's full of his possessions, who's covetousness, who has his idolatry, who wants all his stuff, absent God's grace, he cannot be saved. His heart is too hard and too turned towards what he has. Now let's look at a contrast. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 16. And I forgot to tell you what the title of that first part is. I called it Pride in Possessions. It was a Pride in Possessions. This point I titled A Humility in Brokenness. A Pride in Possessions and now Humility in Brokenness. 
So let's look at Acts 16, starting with verse 25. Now remember, Paul and Silas are in jail now. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. In contrast to this rich young man, we find what's going on with the jailer. He's introduced as guarding the prison where Paul and Silas have been confined following their casting out of a a demon-possessed girl. The spirit had caused her to divine certain matters, and her owners were making money off of this. Well, once they found out that their lucrative source of income was gone, they dragged Paul and Silas into the marketplace, and they, they charged them with civil disorder. This resulted in Paul and Silas being beaten and then thrown in the jail. Now the jailer himself is under orders to ensure the security of the prisoners. So he puts them into an inner cell in the prison and he locks their feet in stocks. Now you have to understand the nature of stocks. It's more than just a means of securing prisoners. The stocks were also used as a torture device. You see, they could set your legs as far apart as they wanted or keep them close together. And then you're, you're locked in that position. Whatever degree of discomfort is desired by the jailer, he can put this on the person in the stocks. So this is what's going on. This is the condition that Paul and Silas are in. And then we read that the jailer's salvation, the circumstances of which occur about midnight. Paul and Silas, despite having been beaten, despite being in prison, despite being in these stocks, are praying and singing hymns to God. Now think about that for a moment. When we're in difficult situations, do you pray and sing hymns to God? Or do you moan about the conditions you find yourself? But they're singing and and, and they're praying and the other prisoners are listening to them. And although the prisoners heard all of this, the jailer didn't because in Acts Acts, uh, um, 16.27, we find that he woke up with the earthquake. So the jailer wasn't hearing all this. He's asleep. And then suddenly there's this earthquake. So great in magnitude that the foundations of the prison are shaken. All the doors are opened and every prisoner's shackles fall off. Now, for us in California, we know earthquakes. We've been through a lot of them. But imagine one so great, the foundations are shaken and all the chains come off of prisoners. See, God acted on behalf of his saints. Even though they're cruelly beaten, even though they're sitting in these, this confined in these stocks, nonetheless, they praised him 
And God responded. And it's not the first time God intervened when one of his people was in prison. Consider in Acts 12, 5 through 11, Peter's released from prison by an angel of the Lord. God acts in miraculous ways. So the earthquake awakens the jailer. He discovers that the doors are opened. Now, he assumes that all the prisoners have escaped. So he draws a sword. He's going to kill himself. See, he knew what the penalty was for prisoners escaping. Roman jailers who allowed prisoners to escape faced the same penalty that those prisoners were facing. So in Acts 12, 18 and 19, the sentries who were guarding Peter were executed after his miraculous release. So we might be able to assume from here that at least one or more of the prisoners that were being held were facing capital punishment. And the guard knew this, the jailer knew this, so he figures his life is forfeit. So he's got his sword out, he's gonna kill himself, and Paul calls out in a loud voice and says, don't hurt yourself, don't do this. The prisoners are all here, no one has fled. Now think about that for a minute. Earthquake, shackles off, they're gonna execute me in the morning. I'm out of here. They weren't, they stayed behind, we don't know why. Some out of, maybe perhaps out of respect for Paul and Silas who were leading them in hymns and praying. Some suggested it might be because of the earthquake. They were just so shaken, they were stunned, they didn't know what to do. I don't know what the reason is. I don't need to speculate. I do know that God is sovereign and in God's sovereign plan, in his will, not one of them left. So God kept those prisoners in the jail. Then we turn to Acts 16, 29. The jailer calls for lights. And he rushes into the prison. Once inside, it says, trembling with fear. Trembling with fear. He falls down before Paul and Silas. There can be no doubt that this guy is facing the proverbial end of his rope. It's over with. He's despairing. He knows that it's over for him. He's deeply affected. He's facing death. He's deeply affected. He's trembling. And he no doubt knew of their preaching. He knows why they're in prison. And he's told, don't let these guys go. Don't let them escape. Now, he's experienced the firsthand, the power of God. He's heard of their preaching, and God shakes these foundations. He's, he's feeling this. He knows this. He's got nothing left to hold on to. God is powerful. His life is forfeit. And at that moment, his heart is open to God. He is a man in despair and at the end of his rope. Perhaps some of you today are at the end of your rope. You're in despair. Is your heart open to God? Are you willing to listen as he tells you his love for you and his plan of salvation? Then we get to the heart of the passage. In Acts 16.30 we read that the jailer brought Paul and Silas out of the cell and that simply, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He approached Paul and Silas humbly. He's bowing down before them. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? There's no reference to deeds. Not what good deed must I do. Well, no actions. Just a presentation of a simple query. What must I do to be saved? He was not looking for an act to perform or to complete. He turns to the men who possessed information about the way to salvation and he was prepared to follow their direction, whatever it may be. What must I do to be saved? 
Then in verses 31 and 32, look at the succinct answer that Paul and Silas give to him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. This is the gospel. In Acts 4.12, Peter declares, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is a message declared by Jesus, preached by the apostles and asserted by Paul in his epistles. Consider Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He told the Corinthians, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to first and foremost believe who he is. You have to believe in who he is. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who do men think me to be? Who do they say, what do they say about him? Now the disciples reported that some thought he was John the Baptist, some thought he was Elijah, some Jeremiah, or what are the other prophets? Then he asked the disciples, what do you think? Whom do the disciples believe him to be? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus commended this answer as having been revealed by God himself. Jesus is God come in the flesh. Now to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ also means to believe in what he did. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul sums it up. For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now saving faith requires that one understand his depravity in the depth of his sin. Romans 3, 10 and 12, 10 through 12 says, none is righteous, no, not one. None under, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The rich young ruler, the young man with all his possessions didn't grasp that. Like all of us, he didn't do good. He was evil. No one seeks for God. But see, the lesson for the young man, it fell on deaf ears. But look at what happens with the jailer in Acts 16.33. That same hour, the jailer washed the wounds of Paul. The man who had locked Paul and Silas in an inner cell and placed their feet in the stocks with no concern for their physical well-being, he's put them in a torture device. He's now bathing their wounds and caring for them. He responds in faith. And this faith bears fruit. And he and his family are all baptized. Just like the Ethiopian eunuch we read about in Acts 8, 36 and 38. The baptism occurred immediately after salvation. And following the baptism, the jailer takes the apostles into his home and he feeds them. And then look at the contrast with the sorrowful young man. In Acts 16, 34, he and his family rejoiced that he had believed in God. These are evidence of changed lives, of forgiven sin. The man who only a short time later was distraught over the fact that he thought that the prisoners had escaped, he's ready to take his own life, now he celebrated his salvation. He responded in faith. Next point is the faith that saves. The contrasts between the young man and the Philippian jailer are really striking when you look at it. 
The young man had great wealth. If we look at Luke 18, perhaps he was a ruler of the synagogue or a member of the Sanhedrin even. At the time of his encounter with Jesus, he had much. The jailer was a man under orders. He was to guard the prisoners at the very peril of his own life. At the time he encountered Jesus, he had nothing. He considered his life as forfeit. The rich young man, though experiencing the very presence of Jesus, did not recognize him for who he was. The Philippian jailer, having experienced the power of God, approached in fear and trembling, humbly bowing down. The young man asked what deed he might perform to merit or to gain assurance of eternal life. The jailer asked simply what he must do. The young man did not recognize his sin, but rather spoke of how well he kept the law. The Philippian jailer recognized his spiritual need and approached the very men, though prisoners, who could answer his question. The young man rejected Jesus' call to repent and follow him, and thus rejected salvation. The jailer heeded Paul's call to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved, and his repentance was evident. The young man tried to enter the kingdom of heaven on his own, something Jesus said was impossible. The young man went away in sorrow. But the Philippian jailer humbled himself and relied on grace, and he and his household rejoiced. The faith that saves is not looking for some type of human endeavor by which to merit salvation. The faith that saves makes an open and honest query and is answered directly by the gospel. The faith that saves bears fruit. The faith that saves follows Jesus as Lord. But there is a faith that is not. The accounts of the rich man and the Philippian jailer serve to illustrate the difference between one person who rejects Christ and one who is saved. Central to the issue for both is whether or not they'll follow Christ. That was central to both of them. Jesus says, come and follow me. Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The young man doesn't grasp his sin and he's unregenerate. The jailer understood that he must repent and follow Jesus as Lord. His profession of faith, his obedience in baptism, the manner in which he cared for Paul and Silas all demonstrate the fruit. This lesson is clear to us. Yet these accounts also serve to illustrate another concern that is in the church today. The difference between those who think they are saved and those who truly are. And this is where the Lordship of Christ appears for all of us. The question's the same. What must I do to be saved? Everything Jesus pointed out to the young man so that he would recognize the level of his own sin and who his master was, was, was done by Jesus. His was the way of worldly wealth and all it attains. Jesus declares that one can't serve God in money. Yet the young man would not forsake his ways and follow Christ. To follow Christ, he would have to repent. And sadly, this is the condition of many who think they've secured salvation. They will acknowledge Christ as having saved them, but they won't follow him. They won't follow in obedience. They won't make him Lord. Like the rich young man, they approach the issue of eternal life and salvation with an attitude of what must I do without considering who must I follow. Sadly, some were once told that all you needed to do to get to heaven was to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. That's true enough, but it's an incomplete gospel. 
Without following Jesus, making him the Lord of your life, all you're doing is making a statement. The demons believe, but they're not saved. If the person does not serve Christ as Lord, he's serving another master. Jesus told the rich young man to follow him. He tells us to pick up our crosses and follow him. The Philippian jailer was told to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote that we will be saved if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. If you profess Jesus but are not bearing some fruit, even, even a little fruit, as demonstrated by the Philippian jailer, you have reason to ask about your salvation. Who are you following? Who is the Lord of your life? John tells us that we can't persist in sin and yet abide in Christ. You cannot love the things of the world in place of loving Christ. From James 1, 14 through 17, we know that a faith that is not is a faith without works. Now, it doesn't mean that works justifies a person. Only faith can do that. But there's a demonstration of that faith. And a demonstration of that faith is following Jesus as your Lord. So the questions I have is, do you rely on good works to save you? Do you look for those do-be, don't-be sermons? Do you look more on, how am I supposed to behave and that will save me? Or is your heart turned towards following Jesus as Lord? Do you believe and trust only in Him? Does your faith bear fruit? Or are you following the ways of the world? Are you following Christ? If you've not made Jesus the Lord of your life, I plead with you to do so today. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what this afternoon holds. James tells us we're foolish if we make plans to go somewhere and to do something. God is sovereign. Don't wait another moment. Make Jesus the Lord of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by looking at these illustrations, by looking at the accounts of the young man and the jailer, Lord, we see a difference. One is not willing to follow you. The other is. One's heart is not turned towards Jesus Christ. The other is. Father, one left in sorrow. The other rejoiced. Lord, I pray for everyone here that we, we are following you that Jesus is indeed Lord of our lives, that we have that joy and that ability to rejoice, that we don't turn away in sorrow because we don't want to give up a sin that we have, the possessions that we have, the pride that we have, the false security that we have in this world. Father, may it be that we all follow Jesus, follow him with our whole hearts, and indeed make him Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.